everyone, and welcome to our November edition of the One Haas Podcast. I'm your host for today, Cassandra Salcedo, Haas full-time MBA, class of 2021. For anyone who tuned in on last month's episode, I was Sean's guest for Filipino Heritage Month, and this month, excited to celebrate Veterans Month. And to do that, I am joined by one of my fellow Haas MBA classmates and great friend, Joe Choi. While his day job is an accountant executive at Amazon Ads now, he's also a Navy SEAL veteran, water polo coach, children's book author, salsa dancer, and much more. Great to have you here, Joe. Thanks, Cass. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's get started. And so now tell us a little bit about your origin story. Yeah, actually, let me take a step back and start with my parents first, because I think that ties well into... uh, obviously why I'm here. My parents actually did not meet in America. So they both were born and raised in Korea. And my mother moved to the U.S. with my grandparents in the early 80s. And then similarly, once my father was done with his mandatory military service, all Korean males have to serve in the military for a little bit of time. He decided And I actually don't know the exact details of this, but he decided he was going to move to America. So he only had enough money. And this is why he's crazy or brave or a combination of both. (laughs) He only had enough money for a one-way ticket to the U.S. So he flew to New York for whatever reason. It took a Greyhound bus from New York all the way to Los Angeles. He was broke. He had no idea what to do. And our family is Catholic. So he went to a church and just spoke to a priest. And that's how he started his life in America. From there, him and my mom met through a mutual friend. And then fast forward X many years, my older brother was born and I was born and we all uh, grew up in Los Angeles. So that's a little bit of the backstory of how that all happened. I actually didn't realize that your father was also had a military background. Mm -hmm. Does the military background go deep past that as well? Or did it start at your father? No, no. So uh, all Korean males have to serve in the military. So think of it as it's, whereas in America, it's all volunteer service. In Korea, there's mandatory service. So it's about two, I believe, two to three years of mandatory service. Uh, So what you'll see a lot of times, actually, from what I know, and I could be mistaken, is most males, once they graduate from high school, if they're not going right into college, they go right into the military. And if you're a celebrity, you get a little bit of wiggle room before you have to serve in the military. If you go to college, there's options of what you can do. But there has to be some semblance of military service that occurs if you're a Korean citizen, male. Got it. Okay. So from there, so grew up in Los Angeles and around junior high, my parents decided it would be a good idea to move to Orange County. Main reason being is because private school is super expensive and the public schools are much better out in Orange County. So we decided to move out there. I should say they decided to move the entire family out there. And from there, grew up for the second part of my life in a small city called Fullerton. Uh, A lot of Asians. Grew up there, went to junior high, and it was in high school where a few things happened. I started to uh, play water polo and swim. And it was through there where another classmate of mine, he uh, decided to want to go to the Naval Academy. Now, for me, if you ask me during that time, I actually wanted to go to West Point. Now, what I didn't mention, which we can backtrack on, the reason why I decided I wanted to go to West Point, which is the U.S. Army Academy, for uh, those are not familiar. My godfather at the time, when I was in fourth grade, we're at some church picnic. And 
being young, being impressionable, we just started chatting and he just told me, you know what? You look like a good fit for West Point. And I say, wait, well, it's West Point. A little background on him is he, I believe he went to the Virginia Military Institute and he just started just throwing out, oh yeah, you know, you'd be a great fit for it. You're going to get a great education. You get to serve your country. You get to travel the world. You know, and he just kind of sold me on this idea and being young and not really knowing much of what he was saying, to be honest. I just said, sure, that's what I'll do. And it started to become a self-fulfilling prophecy because when people would ask me, where do you want to go to college? I would say, oh, I'm going to go to West Point. The more I said it, the more I started believing it. And the more people validated it by saying, oh, that's a great college. It's very hard to get into, this, this, that. So now fast forward to high school, you know, my mind has said, oh, I need to go. To, I'm going to go to West Point. But in order to get there, it's really difficult. So I got to make sure that I'm getting good grades, being well-rounded with sports and all that stuff. And once again, back to water polo now. That's uh, where one of my teammates went to a Naval Academy. And so what ended up happening was the more I did a little bit more research into all the service academies, the one underlying factor that I knew I wanted to do was I wanted to play water polo at a competitive level on top of everything else that service academies and, you know, graduating from there was going to uh, bring in the future. And so I decided I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. Funny story, I actually got rejected initially. So West Point accepted me when it was time, you know, for college applications to come out and West Point accepted me. Naval Academy actually rejected me. And it was through the water polo coach who had, I believe, one slot left open for recruitment. He gave it to me eventually because I think somebody else above on the roster that he wanted to recruit decided to opt out. So he got me in and went to the Naval Academy, had no idea what I wanted to do in the Navy. All I knew, I was just happy to be there. And it was through my short time uh, on the water polo team. I was only there for a season. Unfortunately, I got cut at the end of it, but that's okay. You know, still was able to maintain the friendships and all that with across the board. Now, it was all the seniors and the juniors. There was a history in the Navy water polo where a lot of them go SEALs. And I remember looking up to them and thinking, okay, if this is where the legit guys go, this is where I want to go to. And that's what inspired me secretly to uh, want to become a SEAL. I didn't want to say it out loud because frankly, there was fear that, oh, what if it doesn't work out? What if I don't get picked up? Because there's only so many slots. Come senior year, after going through the different requirements, we get to the final interview portion of it where we're interviewed in front of a bunch of uh, SEALs. And thankfully, I picked up those 26 slots for 49 candidates who went for it. So I did that. And from there, checked into... San Diego, once I graduated from Annapolis and started SEAL training. It took me a little bit to get through. It was rough. It was, and we could talk more about whatever that aspect of it was. What I can say, honestly, it was very challenging, very difficult, but certainly lifelong bonds and friendships were formed even through that, uh, you know, I would say relatively short period of time. Yeah. So it sounds like this, both your friend and your water polo coach were very influential in your decision to even have a desire to even apply for the Navy SEAL program. And would you say that there was any familial influence on that as well? Or was it simply from those people you mentioned? Yeah, I would say it's the latter. Actually, in fact, my parents were terrified when I told them that I got the slot to go to uh, SEAL training. And they're quite nervous. And I just said, hey, you know, being uh, in my early 20s, I said, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. So either you can support me or not, but I'm going to go and do this. Would you say that they were supportive throughout the process? 
Uh, I think they were just more hands-off. I think they were just always concerned at what was going to happen because honestly, they don't even know what the training entails. They didn't really know much of anything. All they knew that it was really hard and really difficult and potentially dangerous. So I think if anything, they, the way that they supported me was just not by really asking too many questions or prying into it or probing into it. Yeah. And tell us more about the process for joining. You mentioned it was one of the most more challenging parts and and I can only imagine what it was like. So I'd love to learn more. Yeah, yeah. So from the academy, it's pretty competitive to get a slot. Like I said, we had 26 slots our year for 49 candidates ultimately at the end. it's The Navy decides how many slots that they'll be giving out. In my case, uh, your junior year, you start off with, they put you through like a one and a half to two day, like mini hell days where you're just running a lot. You're cold, you're carrying around a, a pack with you. And you're just doing a whole lot of that. And based on how you perform on there, because you know there's a lot of people who try out for it and they'll whittle it down to a certain number who then get to go to a SEAL team for the summer and hang out with them, learn from them. And, you know, that's just part of what we call like your summer cruise. So every summer at the Naval Academy, you do a different type of training. So if you did well enough at this in this screener, this uh, test screener that was over two days, you get to hang out with the SEAL team, which is usually pretty indicative if if you have a chance at uh, getting an actual slot. Because if you didn't do well enough and you didn't get to go to a SEAL team and yet you still try and apply, chances are you're not going to get it come senior year when you're going for the actual uh, slot. So you do that and then your senior year or very early, you basically do one last physical test, which is the standard SEAL physical screener, which comprises of a 500-yard swim, max push-ups in two minutes, max sit-ups in two minutes, and max pull-ups. And then you do a one and a half mile run afterwards for time. So that's the last check in the box, if you will, before you go into this interview round. And they change it up year to year. But when we did, it was six seals. It might've been eight. You go in one by one and they just ask you a series of questions. Now, based on how you do it holistically after everything like that, once again, you know, depending on how many slots there are, you have picked up. Thankfully for me, I'm glad I got picked up because it was it's always competitive every year. Yeah. Now the actual training of itself sucks. And I could go into that as well. The training's <laughs> rough. Yeah. I only hear how just competitive and, and challenging the process is. So that's a great story and, and very educational for, for me to learn as well. Um, and so now this month, we're celebrating Veterans Month. And so in business school, I had the opportunity to meet not only ourselves, but a lot of the other fellow veterans. And there was a lot of misconceptions that not only myself, but a lot of other classmates, and I'm sure some of the listeners have. So Mm -hmm. what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions about people who join the... We can keep the scope to US for now, but if there's any international scope that you have thoughts on as well. Yeah. To sound as blunt as possible, I feel one big misconception is that those who decide to join the military are very close-minded narrow-minded and not very intelligent people. I mean, just putting it like how it is. I think that is a huge misconception uh, that people have, or sometimes that is troublemakers who decided to join the military. So, and I know those all sound negative, but I think, you know, when we talk about misconceptions, uh, the first thing that pops in my mind is what are some of the regular negative things that I do here or the feelings that I guess I would say those are probably it. One of the things that I learned um, was just, 
I had this vision that everyone was kind of running around doing certain things, but just depending on what your actual responsibility is, Mm -hmm. a lot of your time is actually just spent, you know, not necessarily going off (laughs) fighting and doing all these things, but you're kind of just hanging around and doing other type of things. Um, And so could you share a little bit more about your experience there and maybe some of your perspective? Yeah, yeah. So to your point, for example, at a SEAL team, there's not just SEALs. There's a lot of what we call support personnel where, you know, you have your administrative department where they take care of all essentially the paperwork regarding whatever's required in order to move around, to deploy overseas, down to pay, all that stuff. And then you have your intelligence department who's in charge of basically informing the entire SEAL team, hey, what's, what are the current events? What are the insights that are coming from them? How does that relate to where we're going to deploy to overseas? How does that relate to any ongoing conflicts? Are there any insights that we can draw from this? Things that we should be aware about, careful about, looking forward to? There's that. And then there's the supply department because we still need equipment. We still need ammunition. We still need all that. And then there's a medical department that takes care of us, you know, day to day, you know, think of like a clinic and especially when we're deployed overseas as well. And there's even like a communications department that has, is in charge of all of our communications equipment when you talk about radios and even down to the training department, because in order for us to deploy overseas, we have to make sure we're well-trained. So there's even a training department. So there's a lot that goes into this. And to your point about, you know, it's not just, uh, we're just going overseas or we're going to war and fighting. You know, there's a lot of planning and preparation that goes into it. Then the next portion is we get together as a, what we call platoon. So think of it as a team. So there's around 18 SEALs. And we get together and we train together in the core SEAL requirements. So when you talk about, okay, uh, scuba diving, land warfare, being out in the desert, knowing how to clear buildings within a city, knowing how to drive all the different vehicles that we will when we're overseas. So there's a whole slew of, even uh, skydiving, there's a whole slew of different training goals that we have to achieve prior to deploying. And then finally, there's a little bit of time where there's more specialized training depending where we're going. So in the case, if you go to Asia, you have specialized training. In my last deployment, we were training to go to Iraq. So there's a four or five month portion where you're training for that. And then you finally deploy overseas and you align with whatever mission that you're given. And so that's to your point, there's a whole lot of preparation that goes along with it. And that also includes not only just SEALs, but a lot of support as well. Definitely. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about how long you were you're doing it for and where you were deployed, some of the different locations? I was in the Navy for nine years. So from 2009 to 2018, and I was a SEAL for seven of those years. So 2011 to 2018. During that time, I deployed to the Philippines, Guam, and Iraq. Philippines was a seven and a half month deployment. Guam was a short one. It was like four and a half months. And Iraq was about six and a half months. I think across the board throughout my entire naval career, one thing that I did learn is the importance of communication, both up and down. Yes, I think, and it boils back to empathy. How do I communicate something in a way where the recipient is going to not only understand, but also be, especially if it's a request or asking for permission, being willing to say yes. So maybe in some ways being diplomatic, uh, maybe that's a nice way to put it. But at the end of the day, I think it's just really learning how to talk to people because you have people from all different walks of life. Not, And I'm not just talking about U.S. personnel. I'm talking about international as well. When we're in the Philippines, we're working directly with the Filipino forces. 
you know, Iraq, same thing. We're working directly with the Iraqi security forces. So I think a lot of it boils to empathy and just having that broad scope, that broad into mind where you're keeping culture in the back of your mind and just being very understanding. Okay, hey, we all grew up differently and but we have a mission to do. How do we all get to yes? So I think that's probably the biggest learning I got from all of this. Or if anything as well, throughout my SEAL career, just uh, calm breeds calm. You know, if you start panicking, especially as the leader, everyone's going to start panicking. So even if you don't feel comfortable or feel the best about a certain situation, just pretend to be calm because that way everybody else will help stay calm as well. And it's very infectious in the good ways. You know, if you're calm, everyone else will stay calm as well. So that's probably another big lesson I learned. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> uh, to go back to the the empathy point, that reminds me of one of the things that you're working on is the children's book. Yes. And I know empathy is a, is a potential theme from what I'm hearing. Could you talk about the goal of the children's book? Yeah, the goal of the book is to teach empathy. A little bit about the book is this. Yeah, if you uh, actually, uh, one of our classmates called out the title because the title is called Empath and Fee. <laughs> <laughs> so if you combine the two characters, name is Empathy. It's a story about what seems like your classic bully versus bullied character tale. But the twist that I put into it is that the first half of the book tells the story from the bullied character's perspective. And I use animals, like cute animals. You know, I always think that's a nice touch for a children's book. <laughs> and I make sure it rhymes. And then the second half of the book actually retells a story, but this time it's the perspective from the bully. And so I just thought it's very important because I think sometimes we live in a world that seems too polar, you know, black and white, zero and one, right, wrong, that I think sometimes we forget that there's a gray zone in the middle. And uh, that's what this book tries to help at least teach that, hey, you know, there's no clear, it's not like one person's a good person, the other person's a bad person. It's no, there's, there's more to it than what it seems. So that was, empathy is the theme of the book. What's the title, Joe? Empo Empathy, A Tale of Understanding and Kindness. Great. Can't wait to read it. Uh, thanks for the plug in there. <laughs> uh, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey. And so what inspired you to go to business school? And specifically, why, why did you choose Haas? Yeah. Okay. So what inspired me to go to business school? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to be real honest here. A lot of military folks, when they get out of the military, have no idea what they want to do. And I was one of them. I had no idea what I wanted to do. However, thankfully, because of a lot of those ahead of me who got out were great mentors in this sense where a lot of them do go to business school. So it's not uncommon to see a lot of military folks go to business school uh, for two reasons. One, we talked about misconceptions. I think someone coming straight out of the military and trying to find a civilian job is quite difficult. Even coming out of business school, to be honest, it is difficult. However, I think a lot of that comes from not understanding the job role that the person has done, you know, that the service member has done, because a lot of times I think a lot of these skills are transferable. But once again, it comes to ignorance, misconceptions, and misunderstanding. So I think business school in of itself is a great way to, and I hate using the word pivots. I'm not going to use that word. <laughs> it's a great way to shift into setting yourself up to uh, get into the civilian sector. So that's the reason why I picked it. I thought it would be a good launch pad for me to be able to uh, have another school under my belt that has clout and shows like, okay, hey, you know, this person has a unique life background and can also 
you know, got into one of the tougher institutions in the nation for business. And so, okay, we'll take a chance at them. And I think a lot of vets share that same sentiment, not knowing what to do, knowing that business school is a great way to, you know, shift careers into something in the civilian sector. And also, frankly, to have a whole lot of fun because business (laughs) school is a lot of fun. And so to anyone, prospective students listening out there, what would you say, I guess, could you share some of your top highlights from business school? And now looking back, now that you've gone through it, Mm -hmm. any words of wisdom there? Yeah, top highlights. Oh, so many. If I could just narrow it down, it's this. As funny as it sounds, the suffering that we went through together with uh, academics, the traveling that we did together, and honestly, all the networking, just the different events, the parties, I think business school, if I could redo it, I would just say this, just do the bare minimum for academics because yes, you are going to learn there, you know, but it won't be to the depth that you're going to need because everything will be on the job training. I think what's more important is, you know, instead of taking that depth and trying to dive into academics, use that time to get to know your classmates, to uh, try new things, uh, you know, expand your reach, do things that you wouldn't have done normally because I think... It's also a safe time to take risks. You know, we had classmates who came from consulting who tried startup. We have classmates who came from finance who tried, uh, you know, you name it. They just, you know, they will go to just completely different industries and just try it out because I think it was a safe time to try it. And I I don't know about your experiences, but I'm sure maybe it was something similar. You're like, hey, I'm just going to take these two years and try new things. And, you know, if I like something great, and if not, then at least I gave it a try during this period where I do have wiggle room and you know, now I have a clear idea of what I do want to do. Yeah, I personally know because I was in your class, a lot of the awesome things that you did. But for the listeners out there, could you share some of the... Because you talk about risks, right? And just some of the experiences. You, you were doing so many things, could never keep up with you. <laughs> what were some of the some of the risks that you did during business school to try out that were new for you? Yeah, so uh, we could talk about extracurriculars first. So uh, I volunteered with the UC Berkeley men's water polo team. Shout out to Kirk and Jeff and the team out there. <laughs> Love you guys. I uh, had a great time doing it. And I, I mean, you remember this, cast? It was like, uh, yep. it, I was there for at least 20 hours a week. You know, so it was like kind of like a pseudo like part-time job, but I loved doing it. And on top of that, I was on travel with the team too over the weekends. So in some sense, it was a job, you know, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I thought to myself, okay, if I don't do this now, I'll never get a chance to do this again, you know, especially in student status and just being able to really just mesh and be a part of the team. So there's that. On the other side, one, two things I knew is I did not want to do consulting and I did not want to do banking. So I didn't go to any of those functions. However, what I did find myself trying was startup. So I had a startup idea that took many different shapes and sizes you know, ultimately where we landed on, it was supposed to be an app that was supposed to help first time soon to be dads uh, navigate the pregnancy. Now, honestly, uh, since then, yes, the project is still alive, but it's moving very slowly. So if that's any indicator, but that was also one of the things I thoroughly enjoyed it, took the risk, took the chance, learned a ton from it. And even with my role here at Amazon and my role prior to this, I was at a virtual reality music concert startup. There are so many lessons I learned from going through that unknown and trying something new where I just learned a ton. I know that certainly helped translate to what I'm doing today in many different ways. So you touched a little bit how you worked at a VR company and then I know now you're at Amazon. What were some of the things that you took with you from both your 
prior experiences in the Navy, as well as business schools that you take with you now in your current job, as well as your just the overall transition? What was that like? Yeah, I know some veterans have a hard time transitioning. I actually did not have as hard of a time. Aside from trying to find a job, I think that was the hardest part. Brought as far as meshing with people, not too much of a de- problem, but maybe that boils back to empathy. I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying I'm some expert in it by any means or a pro, but maybe it's because uh, it was something that I always took with me, just try and see the world from the eyes of a different per- from the other person that you're trying to communicate with or people you're trying to communicate with. I would say the common theme that I took with me from military to now is obviously communication. That was one. And always trying to improve, always learning better because, you know, us as humans are very complicated. And I think that was the second lesson that I learned as well is that the job in of itself is usually quite simple in comparison to people. People are the hardest. Human relations are the hardest thing to work with, to navigate around and deal with. And I think that is something across the board that I've seen consistent in the military with my last role, with the current role, is that in anything and everything, humans are the most complicated. And hence, that's why communication is so important. Having empathy is so important. And also just uh, being able to mesh with people. When I look back, I know there's certainly people who are quite ambitious, but sometimes that ambition can be selfish in some ways. And I think what I've learned is those that thrive the best in the long run in the long run, you know, not maybe in the short term, but in the long run are those who are truly, those who are the selfless individuals who uh, really put uh, themselves out there for the team. So I think those are kind of common themes that just stuck with me. And, uh, you know, so far it's been working. Hopefully they don't change because uh, I, maybe I have like a existential crisis if, if those <laughs> turn out to not be true anymore. But man, who am I? What am I? I can confirm it's still working, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, Joe, that the difficulties in finding jobs. So I think that's something that myself and a lot of listeners can relate Mm -hmm. to, especially coming when we're doing these pivots into any type of career. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for anyone listening who is currently trying to pivot into a new industry and ways to make and really make your experiences? Because to your point, the communication, empathy, all of that stuff is amazing, extremely relevant, but it Mm -hmm. might not be as obvious to certain recruiters, right? And so how do you and what is your advice for making it relevant? For example, you're at Amazon now. How did, (laughs) what's your advice there? Yeah. Uh, First, use ChatGPT to help you with your resume. (laughs) Uh, You know, something that uh, I found helpful and just more tactical. Copy that, whatever that JD looks like and paste it into ChatGPT. Then paste your resume in there like bullet by bullet and just be like, hey, how do I make it sound relevant to what the JD is asking for? So that's more tactical advice. Some people may not like that, but hey, whatever. I think leveraging technology is a good idea in in simplest form. I think being your genuine self and being able to show that on the resume is certainly helpful. And I'll give you an example from mine. Uh, And I got actually got this uh, idea from one of our classmates. But there's like a hobbies and fun facts section. And this is your opportunity to kind of showcase a little bit of humor and personality. So on my resume, I actually have do written, uh, was part of the uh, only dual comedy magic show at Haas. I like to perform magic. I'm a breakfast burrito connoisseur. Uh, what else did I write in there? You know, like dad joke extraordinaire, but I'm not a dad. So uh, there's our... Waste it and take it for what it's worth. Hey, you know, if you like to do that, do, do it. If not, but that's actually what helped me get my job at Amazon. Because what happened was, is this, 
And this ties into another point. Any job you want, even if you're not qualified for it, just apply for it. Because this Amazon job on paper, I was not qualified for it. So if there's any role you're interested in, just do it. Because you never know what's actually on the hiring manager's mind and what they're looking for. So in this case, it turns out that my boss now, she loved my resume because she saw that last portion and she thought it was hilarious. And she was like, okay, this guy's got a personality. I like him. Let's, let's at least talk with him and see what it's about. Fast forward after so many interviews, when I got the job, when I onboarded onto the team, and this is why I say just apply for any job because you never know what they're looking for is this. What I found out were two things. A lot of times, those JDs are antiquated. As in, the people who are looking to hire are so busy, they don't have the time to scrub through it and change things. That's why they just tend to just leave it as is. Oh, you need six plus years of experience, blah, blah, blah. Nine times out of 10, at least from what I've seen at Amazon, at least and talking to my bosses, they're just so busy. They just say, sure, just post it, you know, and we'll figure out later who we, you know, through the interviews, who's the right fit. When I got hired, they actually told me that in Joe's case, he fit the perfect mold because we were looking for three things. Someone who had zero Amazon experience because what we were coming to realize is we are hiring too much internally and we started to think that we're just kind of falling into this group think mentality. So we wanted somebody out of the Amazon circle. We want somebody who had no experience in media, ads, let alone sales. Because once again, we started thinking that we're sort of falling into this circle of just group thinking. We wanted outside perspective. And it tied into the third thing where we wanted somebody who had unique life experience and background because we think that that's of great value, not only to the team as a human being, as a teammate who could share different life experiences. But once again, just that out of box thinking of maybe this person has a thought, has something else that they can bring that we're not thinking about right now. And that's what I didn't know this at the time, but that's what got me hired. So that's why I say use ChatGPT to, to your advantage and apply for anything and everything and just try and stay true to your, true to your uh, own genuine voice where you, at least you can showcase some personality. So take it for what it's worth. I mean, that would just be my uh, two cents on it. Good advice. And that's great to hear that Amazon was actually specifically even looking for people to think out of the box because... I still remember coming out of college. It still seems like there are a lot of companies today that are a little bit more rigid in, right. in how they're thinking, but it is great to hear that companies, especially at the Amazon level, do think about hiring mm-hmm. people who think out of the box and not so rigid. And so now let's pivot back to some of the fun hobbies that you do. What made you interested in water polo? Because that seems to what have led you to mm-hmm. your Navy SEAL experience that led you to other things. So what led you actually in the first place back to water polo? I swam a little bit when I was eight years old for like a public club team. So that was my uh, introduction to the water. I remember every so often we would play water polo, very rarely. But back then I was so small, I didn't know what to do. I actually hated it. Fast forward to high school, it was actually my friend, one of my buddies who I swam with. He was actually the one who convinced me saying, hey, man, like this is so much fun. You want to give it a try? Not that I was traumatized, but I so reflected back on my time earlier when I was uh, eight years old and how much I disliked it. But he, you know, he was very, he's a very convincing guy. So I said, okay, sure. Why not? Let's go for it. And actually what got me to stick with it was this because I remember first year was so bad. It was hard. And our team, our fresh soft team, at least lost almost every single game. And I think this is where the competitiveness inside me came out where I said, okay, 
we got to start winning. So in order to do that, same thing, I was thinking, I have to get better. And I think it was because it was so challenging and I was so bad at it. And our team was so bad at it. That's what motivated me to stick through it. And it started to turn from something that was a challenge to something that I really, 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 really enjoyed and, you know, still follow to this day. And in fact, I still keep in touch with all the different coaches that uh, I've played for and have worked with, almost all at least. Love that. And to go even further back, when I asked you about your origin story, you mentioned, so it starts with your parents' origin story. And so is there anything that you'd like to share that comes to mind on some of the life lessons that you've learned from them? Yeah. Uh, Action-wise, my father's not the type to really complain much. So that's why that's something I certainly admire. Like, you know, he's just kind of like one of those guys who just works and he doesn't really complain. So I, I certainly try to be like that because I, I think that's a very strong quality he has. Something he's told me though, which I do agree with and at more and more now, more so back then was in my l- mid, late 20s, he once told me, hey, look, listen, it's important. Yes, you should plan ahead. But don't plan too far ahead because you never know what life's going to throw at you and how much life is going to change. So try and enjoy the moment. Be present. Yes, plan for the future, but don't plan too far ahead because things can change in an instant. You know, and he doesn't mean that to be like doom and gloom. He meant that to say like, you know, for good things, for bad things, it's just unexpected things are going to happen. So if you focus so much in the future, you're just not going to enjoy the now. So that's something that I've uh, taken on board as well. That's so true. And so now knowing that you're, so you recently started at Amazon and taking your father's advice though, how far in the future have you planned for, if at all, and uh, what's in store for the future, whether career or non-career related? <laughs> I've already planned like a year ahead. <laughs> to be honest, my thought was, hey, I enjoy the team. I love the team and the leadership. I think they're solid. I think they're great. I think there's a lot of uh, upside potential to be uh, in this role. And so I'm going to ride it. I'm going to ride the wave and see where it takes me. But for sure, at least the next year, I'm going to be on this team. Unless something changes, but that's the plan. And beyond that, haven't really planned too much. On a personal level, yeah, same thing. Just enjoy it while I have it here. Um, If there's an opportunity to move to New York, I already told them, yes, let's do it. And so that's just kind of where I'm at right now. So nothing pled too far ahead. Is there any specific goals that you want to achieve in your life? Not necessarily like a plan, but something where you say, and it could it could be career, non-career, anything, honestly, sure. that you're like, I want to, by the time I die, right. I want to have achieved this. And it could be something super simple. Yeah. I think it's just two things. Is uh, have a beautiful family uh, and however you know many kids that means or doesn't mean, all good a beautiful family, and coach water polo. That's it. Those are the two things. Is there anything else, Joe, that you'd like to share with the audience, whether it's Veterans Day related or or not? I think going back to misconceptions is uh, hopefully through this conversation, you know, for those who are not friends with many veterans or don't know many, that you come to find that they were quite normal people. You know, and I say that in the good ways, as in like, hey, we're just, uh, you know, you're normal, everyday, some fun loving, some, you know, um, more relaxed than others, just kind of just normal people. So, you know, especially for this month, you know, something that I always uh, keep in mind is if I ever find that anybody's a veteran, I always try and, you know, just say something nice to them. Because uh, at some point in their past, you know, or during their time when they're in the military, you know, there is a 
not to say they're owed it because we did volunteer for it and we do volunteer for it is, but there is a lot of sacrifice that goes along with it to include a whole lot of time spent away from family. So that's what I would probably part with. Just so you know, if, if you want to um, say something nice to a vet. Great, simple action that everyone listening can definitely take part in. Well, really enjoyed chatting with you, Joe. Looking forward to the next time. And thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I hope I'll see you soon. I mean, it's only a matter of time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. And there you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. One Haas podcast is a production of the Haas School of Business and produced by University FM. Until next time, go Bears.